Hello and welcome to the CSDC podcast. I'm joined today by Blaine Haggart, who's Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University. He's at CPSA this week to present his paper on the rise of the U.S. surveillance state. So if I could try to summarize the argument of your paper, as I understood it, uh, you seem to indicate that a new form of state, uh, i.e. the surveillance state, is developing as a partner of sorts to a new knowledge-based uh, sector of the economy. Uh, where knowledge-based corporations have sort of superseded the financial sectors as like the, the main movers of the, of the new economy. So where and how do you see this uh, state transformation occurring? Well, I think that you summed it up uh, pretty accurately. So what, and it's not just that, uh, I mean, almost obviously it's happening with companies like Google and Amazon. Uh, companies whose business models really control of knowledge uh, in one way or another, moving to the top of the top of uh, any kind of measure of, uh, of you know economic power. Um, it's it's also that even in the uh, older industries uh, such as production, uh, the control of knowledge is becoming the driver of value. Um, when you look at uh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but if, if you look at, for instance, what is driving the value of in the stock market, it's mostly intangibles such as intellectual property, control of intellectual property, um, branding, things like that. Things that we things that aren't what we usually think of when we think of as what produces value. Um, you know, tangible assets, sales, things like this. It's 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 the it's the it's the, uh, it's the intangibles that that are are coming to the forefront. And the contention, uh, or, or at least what I think is happening and what I try to talk a little bit about in the paper, is that this is going to change and might even be starting to change um, kind of foundational issues in the uh, global political economy. Okay, and so you talk about the interplay between sectors of the economy mm -hmm. and sectors of the state, and you see as that, that interplay being what is creating a new surveillance, uh, you call it a state society? I, I call it, it's, um, well, it, it ends up being a, what I call, what I'm calling the surveillance state for lack, if someone else can come up with a better word or another phrase, I'd be happy to take it or to steal it or whatever. Um, but this goes really back to the idea of Robert Cox so from York University who has, who has this idea that um, uh, you can't just, uh, in traditional international, it's kind of like mainstream international relations, a state is a state is a state, and you can compare them across time and, and come to conclusions about them. Cox says that's not quite right. He argues that uh, that states, are, they differ um, in the time period they are depending on the, the, the bargain essentially that's struck between uh, the dominant part of the state and the dominant part of, uh, of civil society. Um, so in the... And you can see this um, in, in, in the big trends in, uh, in in global political economy going back, well, going back as long as you like, I guess. But say, for instance, in the 1950s, it was production was dominant. So the, the saying that they had was, what's good for GM is good for America, strong production base. In the 1980s and up until the present day, um, things have been driven by finance. And so essentially Wall Street... Um, has been driving what's been going on in the global economy. No better example than the global financial crisis. And so, what, and so that's where we kind of are right now. But looking forward, uh, one of the things that, that um, if you use Cox's theory, um, that gets suggested is that um, it's 
not going to be finance or production that's going to be really driving things. They'll still be important, of course, but it'll be control of knowledge. So another way to look at this would be um, would be to look at, for instance, the history of, say, General Motors over the past 100 years. So when it starts, of course, it produces cars, right? So production is important. Over the past uh, decade or so, however, it's made most of its money as an in, uh, in finance in loans and in insurance and things like this. So it's a, become a financial company. And so that speaks to what we see as the financialization of the economy. Now, um, well, not quite right now, but very, it's starting to happen is that, uh, that cars um, are starting to have a lot of software in them, right? And so that's kind of a knowledge product. And we're getting to the point, some people have suggested that um, cars themselves, like the actual physical car, is going to become a commodity that gets differentiated by the software, not even under the hood, but uh, under the, I don't know, under that nice little screen in, in, on the dashboard of your car. And that's, that's, that's a different, that will be, a, that'll lead to differences because, um, for one thing, ownership of software is not quite the same as ownership of a car. So it, it's going to lead to things like that. It, it's going to lead to, uh, interesting issues that we can talk about if you like. Now, that's on the kind of the the social side, the society side of things. In the government, um, you have uh, key parts of the government deciding on, the, for instance, on intellectual property, which is essentially the control of knowledge, who, you know, who gets paid for what. Um, the U.S. government back in the 1970s uh, and 1980s and 1990s being convinced by industry that, control, that strong intellectual property protection um, is the secret, or it will be kind of the United States' salvation going forward. In the 1970s, threatened by the by the rise of Japan, the Asian tigers in production, these the companies like uh, pharmaceutical industries say stronger intellectual property protection is the way to go if you want to stay on top. They buy into this, and so this is kind of what we have now is strong IP protection. So that's one part of it when we're talking about the state society complex of what I call the surveillance state. So strong protection for intellectual property. The other side of it too is the surveillance. So, um, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, the Snowden revelations, um, which, you know, everybody knows who Edward Snowden is. You don't even have to say his name anymore. Snowden revelations, everyone knows what that mean, means. The government essentially, the US government is spying on the internet and really, Pretty much all governments are spying on the internet. So, and so your your online activities are constantly being surveilled um, by, uh, by by government. So that's one thing. But at the same time, too, you have the uh, you have the fact that these large companies, uh, the internet companies such as Google, um, such as Facebook, their business model and the dominant business model on the internet involves the involves ubiquitous surveillance as well but in order to sell people like you and me and our and our profiles of what we do online and we do everything online they sell that to, to advertisers this is interesting and, and these two things come together because you have kind of a co or could potentially come together because you have a coincidence of interests each government and business are interested in ubiquitous surveillance of individuals for their own reasons um now Google and Yahoo and other companies have been famously kind of trying to resist the government telling them who they're going to spy on or that they should spy on people and to hand, hand over their information. But what they both share is kind of an interest in reducing that norm that we have had that's at the foundation of essentially uh, Enlightenment society of, of liberal democracy, which is privacy.
So one of the things that I'm going to be that I, that um, that we see is that uh, is that how much privacy should people have is an open question right now. How much should we expect? And my big concern here with this rise of what the, the surveillance state is that these two parts, essentially kind of Google type companies and governments, not just the US government, but I mean, the US government's the biggest one, most important one in the world for these issues. They'll come together and they'll start kind of putting forward an idea of like how much, how much privacy should people expect? How much privacy is good? And so what we might see is a kind of a change in the norm of expectations of privacy, which could have knock on effects for what we can expect um, on, as far as like what's legitimate dissent um, and, and which will affect, of course, the quality of our democracy. And okay, so the... This, but, uh, that was a lot in yeah, there. That was super, a long answer. Yeah, but it's super interesting. And so uh, this this business model that, sure. that Google, Facebook has, which is accumulating data on their users as much as possible right. and like finding ways to, to monetize that. Um, this business model, do you see it as being like really the the uh, the main driver of the economy is is that well is that the business model of the future? Uh, well, that's a tricky question because um, I mean it depends. Nothing's really set in stone, and that's and I, I kind of end the paper saying that I see this kind of emergent surveillance state um, where essentially like you know state and civil society come together and kind of redefine certain key aspects of what we can expect on issues of privacy and access to knowledge, which is the other side of intellectual property, but nothing set in stone. These things are being very intensely contested right now. Um, you'll know that it's all over or, or that we've reached a surveillance state when you would come to a position and say, when the question would have been saying, would have been to me, well, why should we expect to have any kind of privacy? You know, when we, we can't easy, you know, easily conceive of what the world would be like otherwise. Right now, it's contested. We know that there's a debate going on in these things and it's being fought fiercely on the privacy issue with privacy activists and on intellectual property with people who believe that, uh, that IP uh, protection levels are generally too high. So it, it's contested right now. So as far as what the business model of the future is, it's definitely the business model of now. And Google, for instance, is doing very, very, very well by it. So it's going to, they're going to try to keep doing it. Um, whether or not they're, they're able to, um, whether or not people decide that there is a problem with Google's business model is another question. Now, remember, if like, for instance, um, like, do you use Gmail? Yes. Okay, right. So you know that all of your emails are being monitored constantly, right? Yes, and, and, yet, and yet I still use it. And yet you still use it, right? Because, I mean, you've decided, and uh, okay, and honestly, I've got a Gmail account too, um, decided that, you know, it, it's worth it for the, you know, it's a, it's a very good interface. Um, it's very, very efficient. It gets the job done and it's free. But there's, of course, there's a price attached to it, which is essentially, but we've decided that the price is worth paying, which is essentially no expectations of privacy. We're kind of trusting that this this data will only be used essentially to make Google and its shareholders filthy, filthy rich. But uh, we've decided that, yeah, okay, we're fine with somebody looking over our shoulder at a time and kind of logging everything that we do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, so... <laughs> You go, you go on to say in your paper that yeah. this shift to ubiquitous surveillance and knowledge uh, commodification mm -hmm. will have a, a great impact on the international order. So right. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, it, basically because, um, well, l l okay, let's put it this way. Um, in, the, in the 1980s, we had a big debate over over free trade, right? Um, 
and it was it was very very cathartic for Canada. It was like it was a kind of a crucible, um, and it really uh, and Robert Cox sees this essentially as a battle between essentially different you know kind of what he calls it different kind of uh, historic blocks. And so on one side in that in that debate, it was essentially kind of national based uh, production, like companies uh, that that didn't really depend on international trade to to make their money. And you know who they were in favor of protectionism and things like this. And then there were other companies that that you know that we want to trade internationally, and so we want lower trade barriers. And so those guys, the, the latter group, won in, at the end of the day. You, and you got like kind of like the you got the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, uh, North America Free Trade Agreement, World Trade Organization, that kind of thing. And so you had essentially uh, a kind of from a kind of an international internationalized state to kind of like maybe a transnationalized state. So that's your different state society complex. And so the policies that you get as a result change. Um, and so we have, we're in a world where actually now it's kind of hard to imagine um, going like a world where we're raising trade barriers again, because we do not suggest those things in polite company, but that's the way it was before. There's literally no reason why it couldn't be like that again. There's no laws of nature that says it can't be. So th those are what the kind of changes that I'm looking at. Um, now, with respect to uh, the surveillance state and intellectual property in particular, the big worry is that this push for stronger intellectual property is going to affect economic development because it takes knowledge to make knowledge, right? Um, you know, for instance, uh, any book you, you read or you write, um, it's loaded with footnotes because even though, you know, like my name's on that paper, but uh, I've got a lot of sources in there and I couldn't have written it without those people. And so in, sense, in a sense, uh, I'm just kind of like the, the capstone on that. And there's this whole other art, there's this whole other kind of like uh, um, foundation there. Um, and I couldn't write that if I don't have access to that. Intellectual property effectively, whatever else it does, it raises the cost of access to information and knowledge. And it's not just papers, but it's uh, it's everything. Like any kind of innovation that happens in the economy depends on the input of knowledge. Raise, raise the price and you're going to affect what kind of innovation happens, who's able to innovate, who can afford to innovate. Um, and the way intellectual property works, it, it, it just happens to be that the, that the dominant country who controls the, the majority of, uh, who has the companies that control, the majority of economically valuable intellectual property, such as copyrights and patents, um, the United States. So stronger intellectual property uh, um, in, for instance, in, in, the, in these economic agree international economic agreements has the potential essentially to create um, what uh, someone like, for instance, Peter Drahosh and uh, John Braithwaite at the Australian National University call a form of kind of feudal information feudalism of uh, where essentially if you've got it, if you've got the knowledge, you charge everyone else to, basically it's pay to play, which is not how essentially free trade is supposed to work. The free trade is, uh, the idea behind it anyway, is lower the trade barriers, you, you have like competition, the inefficient ones are driven out, and you're left with essentially more stuff being produced more cheaply for more people. That's, that's, that's the idea. It doesn't always work, but that's the idea. With it, stronger intellectual property protection, it's more of kind of a feudal relationship where you have to pay to get into the game. So that's, it's much more hierarchical. It's much more, in my thinking, and this is just, this is, this is kind of where I'm kind of speculating, you know, 
the what if and where might this go is it's much more in line with kind of like an almost an empire view of of the world as opposed to kind of like a, a sovereignty based view of of the world. So that that's one thing on the intellectual property side of things. On the surveillance side, um, as I already discussed, as I already mentioned, um, it really does lead to concerns about the potential for a healthy democracy if you don't have any privacy essentially to, to plot against the government. I, you know, I, I don't mean in, in the sense of bombing, bombings or anything like that, but in the sense of that's that government, that's a really, really stupid policy or those guys are idiots and I want them out of power. I, you know, I want to run against them in the next election. But if you've got the government listening in on that, it's very easy to uh, to confuse kind of like legitimate dissent and disagreement with kind of sedition and treason and things like this especially if you're if you're the guy who's holding the, the kind of like the, the microphone listening in to people right do you see any like uh any like possible way to get out of this track through like certain movements like the free and open software movement absolutely um and, and this is like i said this is still very much contested there's trends that are happening and, and there's certain and there's interest groups that have like, for instance, like like Google doesn't want to destroy the world or like eliminate uh, or eliminate democracy or anything like this. They want to keep making money and they make money based on this business model. But if people don't want it, it, like and it, it was, you know, maybe even you could say it was the same thing of kind of like the robber barons of the early 20th century. Um, they, you know, they wanted to make money, but, you know, the people decided at the time that no, you know, it's great to make money if you want, I guess, but you can't make it in that way. We're going to break you up. And so it is possible. Yeah, we can. It is possible to uh, to pass laws um, to uh, to to counter these things or to outlaw ubiquitous surveillance. Um, it is possible to there is the, like you mentioned, the free and open source software movement is is something that kind of raises the issue of, uh, you, you know, that it is possible to create things and stuff that we use that doesn't require like paying to play. Um, you know, some of the most interesting work on patent or on intellectual property and on innovation now is ha is trying to think around how to uh, you know how to work around these these issues and and is there a way that we can basically have strong innovation without you know locking down every piece of knowledge and charging somebody admission to use it. Well, Blaine Haggard, thanks for joining me on the CSDC podcast. It was super interesting and I hope you have a great CPSA. Thanks very much. It was my pleasure.